Well, we're going back in this letter to Paul's concern about the Corinthians giving. We've already talked about that in chapter 8 for quite some time. There was quite a bit of real estate taken up in chapter 8 as Paul was talking to them about money. And it wouldn't you know it, you come to a church and here's the preacher talking about money. <laughs> That's just where we are in this letter, okay? We're going verse by verse through the letter. But Paul had already talked quite a bit about giving, and now he's talking about it again. And perhaps as a student of Scripture, you might think to yourself, isn't this a bit excessive? Well, actually, Paul says yes. Let's start in chapter 9, verse 1. Paul just says right out, out of the gate here, For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. <laughs> for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Well, the Corinthians, when they heard from Paul about the needy Christians in Jerusalem who were hungry, who were dealing with many dangers of toils and snares, they were ready to help out early on. As soon as they heard from Paul that there are some Christians in this other place who could really use some extra cash. They were ready. But we've been learning that their follow-through follow suffered a bit, didn't it? Their actually completing of this donation suffered a bit. And it is a bit speculated, but it seems pretty obvious that their follow-through was affected by the false apostles who came into that church after Paul left. The false apostles came in and they were slandering Paul and they made them second-guess this whole donation in the first place. But what Paul is saying here in these first few verses of chapter 9 is that the Corinthians' initial enthusiasm for the Jerusalem saints was not only good, but God actually used that enthusiasm to stir up believers in another place to contribute to this same cause. And I know that sometimes it can be a little difficult when we're reading through a passage, like if you look at verse 2, where you see Macedonians and Achaia and these terms that just aren't super familiar to us unless we spent time looking at the maps in the back of our Bibles. So I thought maybe I would give us a, a modern day illustration, potential illustration for how something like this could play out to give us an idea of what it was like with Paul and these believers. Imagine that uh, California continued their current trajectory. Yikes. And uh, in years to come, we find out about some needy saints in California. It's not impossible to imagine that before too long, there will be some needy saints in California, out of money, perhaps even out of food. And the Apostle Paul comes to the saints in Utah, and we're doing well. And he wants to know if we're interested in contributing to the mission, and we readily agree 
And then he goes up to Idaho, and he talks to the saints in Idaho, and even though they aren't as well off as we are, sorry if there are any Idahoans in the room, they also readily agree. And they're stirred up because Paul says to them, these believers down in Utah, especially the ones in Payson, they, they are so ready to contribute, to help out these saints in California. And those in Idaho are, are moved by our immediate readiness that they too are stirred up and ready to give. Something like that was happening between Paul and the Corinthians and those in Macedonia or Idaho. <laughs> Maybe there's a town called Derby in Macedonia. That's not far from Boise. We see we could make this work. Uh, <clears throat> it kind of sounds the same. So for the Corinthians, their desire was not in doubt. Immediately from the beginning, they had this desire, but their preparation was in doubt. And that's why Paul keeps bringing it up to them. You were ready. Now, are you still going to be ready when we come by to collect the gift? I wonder if Paul had in mind this passage from the Old Testament. It's from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. The Corinthians made a vow. Notice that Paul says in verse uh, 5 that this was a promised gift. They had made a promise. This was essentially a vow they had made before the Lord that they would give to this cause. David Lowry in his commentary said, The difference between the Macedonians and the Corinthians lay in their diligence in seeing the project through to completion. Slow starters, the Macedonians finished quickly. But the Corinthians, willing in spirit, needed help in disciplining the flesh. So in addition to the general wisdom principle here for each one of us about paying what we vow, I think there's also an immediate application we can make to churches here. Because remember, Paul isn't writing to an individual, he's writing to a church, and he's talking about other churches. And I think it's important we can take this principle here that churches must have organization and processes to carry out God's will for them. Churches have to be ready to do what God has called them to do. In many churches, there are uh, visionaries and there are those who are more like operators. There are those who dream big and there are those who just want to know what to do. And I kind of get the feeling that the Corinthian church didn't have many operators. They had lots of visionaries, perhaps, those who were dreaming big, who had plans for the church and what they would do, but they would not follow through. And so actually what we're seeing here in this relationship with the Corinthians is that sometimes churches need outside help to get back on the right track. Paul sent Titus and two other men to come alongside to these Corinthians to help them get organized in the way they should be, to help them put the processes in place to follow through. And that had to take so much humility on the part of the Corinthians that someone else would come in and tell them, here's actually what you should be doing to fulfill what God has for you. And Paul was very diligent in this matter. Paul wanted to make sure that this happened. Look in verse 4 of chapter 9, where Paul says that he's concerned that there's, if some Macedonians come to Corinth to collect this gift, 
and they were found unprepared that all of them would be put to shame. The Corinthians, Paul, they would all be put to shame. And so Paul is like triple checking here. You got, are there any triple checkers in the room? <laughs> My mom used to say when we'd pull out of the house and she'd put the garage door down, she would have to say out loud to herself, garage door down. Like just had to, you know, put that in her mind because you check and triple check and make sure that you've done all that you need to do. Well, Paul was very diligent. Paul was a triple checker. And he's following up again and again with them because he wants to guard against the potential shame. He didn't want it to look like he was manipulating the Macedonians. Going back to our illustration with California, Utah, and Idaho, can you imagine if the Idahoans were so stirred up and they raised a bunch of money and say they raised $100,000 for the saints in California? <laughs> and Paul goes and collects the gift from them, and they say, can we go down with you to see what the Utahns have raised? If we raised 100000 I can't imagine what the Utahns have raised. And they come down and, oh, we forgot all about that. Frank, you got 20 bucks, you know, we can just throw it in the plate and real quick we can try to raise something. How shameful it would be and how would the Idahoans or the Macedonians feel in such a case that Paul had manipulated them. And Paul says, we do not want this kind of shame to be put on our account. And he considered such diligence following up with them over and over again. He considered it necessary. Look at verse 5. He says, I thought it necessary to urge these men to go to you before me to arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. They promised a blessing, and Paul thought it was necessary to follow up. Sometimes it gets annoying when people follow up. I know that I can be annoying to people because I follow up a lot. See the blessing in it, would you? <laughs> I'm just... I'm taking my lead from Paul here, right? Triple checking, being diligent. But he's not just being diligent about this because, uh, you know, he's just that wired that way. He's also diligent because of his knowledge of the human nature. Look again at verse 5 at the end. He says he does not want this promised gift to be affected by covetousness. Greediness and covetousness is just always at the door, isn't it? That's the human experience, that we are constantly possibly being affected by selfish desire. Paul here is blasting the siren of the risk of sin being allowed to creep in and ruin Christian fruit. Paul didn't want the sin of greed or the sin of covetousness to creep into that church and hinder the Christian fruit that God was bringing forth through them. And you see, as, as children of the flesh, in a sense, still, we are children of God, but we are also still affected by sin. We are still subject to sin in many ways. We have to recognize that in our natural state, we are very greedy people. And that can still pop up in our lives today. Consider what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. This is from Luke 12, 15. Jesus said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. We have to be on our guard against every form of greed. 
It wears different hats, doesn't it? And in the Christian life, it is a sin that we have to address as Christians because God may lay on our hearts a participation, a contribution to His grand mission. But covetousness can creep in and hinder that fruit. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul was writing to that church saying, Immorality or any impurity or greed must not be even named among you, as is proper among saints. And then same chapter, verse 5, he says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. Covetousness, greediness, is idolatry. That's how the Apostle John in his epistle, 1 John, that's how he ends that letter, is that we are to guard against idolatry, keep distance from idols, and greed is a form of idolatry. So what exactly did Paul have in mind about how covetousness would affect their gift? Notice he says that he wants this gift not affected by covetousness. Well, Paul could have had one or both of these things in mind. First, he could have had in mind that they would withhold, that they would just simply withhold the gift, not giving what they should be giving, rejecting brothers in need for their own wants, their own desires, which is something, of course, that we are tempted to do. Again, 1 John, we looked at this last week, 1 John 3, if a Christian man or woman sees his brother or sister in need and has the ability to help and he or she does not help, how could the love of Christ be in that person? That's the question. And so that's perhaps what Paul had in mind, someone withholding in order to spend on his own wants. But also he could mean that someone would be contributing just so that person could get something in return. Someone giving in order to get personally. An expectation of return. An expectation of the favor being returned immediately. Or perhaps some sort of uh, transaction between the person and God. That God is going to give me this thing that I want because I gave this money here. That's also a form of covetousness, don't you know? That's a form of greed. Expectation of return is not true giving. True giving is sacrificial. It's the heart of what Jesus did. Giving Himself with no expectation of return. And so Paul now outlines in verses 6 and 7 what true giving should look like. He doesn't just give us this idea that the giving should not be affected by covetousness. He also tells us specifically what giving should look like. And these are great principles that we can apply today. So let's look at these verses, 6 and 7. Instead of giving being affected by covetousness, how about this? Now this I say, verse 6, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So let's take some time here to dwell on what it means to give and what it means to get. You see verse 6 there is a very interesting verse. There was a, a song in the 1990s. It was pretty popular, and it had a line in it that says, 
We only get what we give. Hmm. Really? Is that true? There are some people, of course, who believe in karma. I hear that word coming up all the time. I hate that word. You want to know of a personal pet peeve of mine? It's that word being used by the mouth of a Christian. Some would use this passage, or specifically verse 6, to argue for karma. And I'll talk about that more in a moment. But what does it mean to give and to get? What does it mean that he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully? Let's have a conversation on that. Let's, well, I guess more, let's have you listen to my monologue on that and, uh, and marinate on what this means. And I want to start with the sovereign will of God. I'm convinced more and more as I get older that this is where pretty much every conversation should start and end talking about the sovereign will of God, that He is the designer of the universe and He's the operator within the universe, that He has not only set all things in motion, but He has declared the end from the beginning, that God is not only on a high and holy hill apart from us, but that He's also here within His own creation. And I want to bring this up because the big idea is that we have what we have because of God's design for the universe and or His intervention in our lives. We possess what we possess because of God's design and the principles and the laws that He has set in place and or His intervention into our lives. Now, His intervention into our lives is is when He graciously bestows upon us undeserved blessing. We could say our salvation is His intervention, isn't it? Anybody who's here this morning who's born again, you are born again because God intervened. God interrupted your life, didn't He? God, by His own sovereign grace, redeemed you and caused you to be born again to a living hope. But there's also ways that God intervenes in our lives and gives us material things. You ever known any rich idiots? People who just don't know what they're doing and somehow they just have so many things? How did that guy have all those things and have such a beautiful family? How did that happen? Well, God is the one who gives, isn't He? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sometimes, even apart from our own personal diligence in life, God will bless us. Just undeserved intervention of favor, of grace, of blessing. But not just His intervention, God has also set laws in the universe. There are just like principles in the universe that just make this whole thing work. There are are laws that you live by each and every day that we take for granted that are there because God put them there. There is a uniformity in nature, a consistency in nature, because God has designed things with laws and principles that the scientific community discovers and names, and sometimes names them after a creature. Isn't that something? Instead, they should be named after the Creator. We know about gravity. If you roll off your roof, you will know about gravity. The water cycle is amazing. That water falls from the sky in precipitation. It evaporates. It condenses in the clouds, and it just keeps going. This is God's design. 
But even apart from physical things, we know that God has set authority structures in the world. And I know I'm getting a little far afield, but it's all coming back, so hang with me. God has set authority structures in the world, in the civil sphere, in the church sphere, in the family sphere. God has a design for authority, and there are principles there. We know that if we put our hand on the hot stove, it will burn. That's just a law. That's what's going to happen. We know that there's a certainty of death and taxes. That's going to happen. But not just in the natural or sociological arenas do we see principles. We also see this in the spiritual realm, in the supernatural arena. Here's a law or a principle for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Aren't we thankful for that one? Acts 16, the Philippian jailer, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's how God set it up. Believe on the Lord Jesus outside of yourself. Look at the finished work of Christ and believe on Him alone and you will be saved. What a promise. We also have these beatitudes from Jesus. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There are all kinds of spiritual principles throughout the Bible. The book of Proverbs, of course, is famous for this. In the book of Proverbs, there are all kinds of principles. How about this one? In Proverbs 9, verse 8, look at this spiritual principle. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. That's just a principle that you can live by. You can set your watch by it. These are spiritual principles as God has given them to us. And most often in our lives, what do we experience? The laws and the principles of God's design or His miraculous intervention? 99% of the time, it's these laws that He has set in place, right? If you go reprove a scoffer, you'll find out. If you reprove a wise man, you'll find out. The intervention of God is miraculous, and by definition, that means it just doesn't happen as much. It's rare. But these spiritual principles we experience... And I'm setting all this up this way because look again at verse 6. What do we have here? We have a spiritual principle. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is a sowing and reaping principle within God's design. This isn't karma. Because karma, you see, operates apart from God as the great designer of the universe and operator within the universe. It removes the sovereign will of God and it leaves it all up to us. And that there's just this floating law of the universe that did not come from God as designer, that just exists, that if you pay it forward, it'll come back around like a boomerang to you. That is what karma is. That is not what we're learning in 2 Corinthians 9.6. 2 Corinthians 9.6 in this principle is like all those principles in Proverbs. It's in the sovereign will of God. It's in the design of God. This is how God has designed this to work. This is like a New Testament proverb, verse 6 is, where our reaping directly correlates to our sowing. If you know a farmer, just ask him. <laughs> Reaping directly correlates to sowing. You can't go and have a small garden like I've tried to do in the past and expect to bring barrels of vegetation here to share with people. It's not going to happen. 
If God so blesses, you'll have enough for your own sandwich, and that's about it. But sowing bountifully leads to reaping bountifully. And I do wonder, too, maybe Paul had in mind Proverbs, because in Proverbs 11, starting at verse 24, it says, There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous. Now, how is that for a proverb? That goes against everything that your flesh has just like instinctively. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. That's amazing. And I would say, too, that this principle even affects our asking and our receiving. Because God not only knows what we're doing, He also knows what we're going to do. This is another way that this is not karma. God knows our hearts. And if we want something from God just so we can have it for ourselves, that's going to affect what we get. In James chapter 4, verse 3, another, you could say, proverb, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Set your watch by it. It's a principle that's been given. And we have to recognize that we are constantly sowing and reaping in the spiritual realm. Each moment of every day, We are constantly sowing and reaping. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, Paul again writing to this church saying, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So you sow to the world, you sow to yourself, you invest in yourself, prioritizing yourself selfishly, you make yourself the center of your universe, you're going to reap from that. It's it's a principle. It's a law. This is how it works. You are going to reap something, but it will be corruption. Yet if you sow to the Spirit, if you look to God and the things of God and you invest in what God cares about, if you have a heart for what God has a heart for, you will also reap there too. And you will reap from the Spirit eternal life. It's a promise. And what's amazing is in his other letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul actually shows us some crossover where at times spiritual sowing results in material reaping, which is pretty fascinating. In 1 Corinthians 9.11, Paul asks them this rhetorical question, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Wow, now that's fascinating. Paul here was saying, we invested so much into you. We were sowing spiritual seeds, working night and day, not being a burden to any of you. Is it so much if you give us a roof over our heads and something to eat? What, a, what an interesting thought. Yet in all of this, we must remember Christ, who reaped nothing in the world, but He reaped exaltation to the right hand of the Father, didn't He? How much did He sow in this life? How much did our Savior sow in this life as He walked the earth during His earthly ministry, teaching, bearing with people, healing people, performing so many miracles, teaching truth, 
being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's the ultimate spiritual sower, isn't he? And yet, even though the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. If Christ was treated that way, what can we expect? And yet, he is in the fullness of glory, isn't he? He's at the right hand of the Father. After dying in our place for our sins and rising again on the third day, He ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory. And for each and every one of us, we have this promise that we will be with Him. We will be like Him. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are co-regents with Christ. If we die with Him, we will reign with Him. There's another principle that we have before us this promise of reaping glory. We will be glorified, changed in the twinkling of an eye, and we will be with Christ forever. So what's Paul's point to the Corinthians? Going back to this specific context, what is Paul's point? What's the principle that we should glean from this, or we should reap from this if I want to force the pun? Well, he says, sparingly sowing will result in sparingly reaping. Sparingly refers to sparing, right? To spare or to withhold. In ancient Greek, this word was used for thrifty. When it comes to giving, if you fancy yourself a thrifty person and a penny pincher, withholding from others, you could expect to reap sparingly. But bountifully refers, of course, to liberality. Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 12 that if you've been given the spiritual gift of giving, do so with liberality. Do so bountifully. So this is the principle. God blesses givers. That's it. That's the principle. God blesses givers. That's a promise. Those who are Christians, those who are doing so because of their salvation, not for their salvation, those who are doing so to honor Christ, not to earn favor from God, or to earn favor with man, which is most often the case. Those who are doing so with the right heart because of the gospel, God will bless you. God blesses givers. But God blesses givers in His own time and in His own way, doesn't He? Not in our time and in our way. God blesses givers in His own time and His own way. And what you can, again, pun intended, take to the bank is that God will bless you as a giver. That's the promise. Don't read into that what you've heard from some of the crazy preachers on TV. Read into that the context of how Paul is saying it. God blesses givers. Yet, let's make sure verse 7 is right there with verse 6 in our minds too. Getting this blessing isn't as easy as paying God for it. I wouldn't want anyone to think here this morning, oh, okay, so to get blessed by God, I just pay Him. That's not how this works, okay? It's a free will act of worship. This is in the realm of Christian living and giving, as Paul is describing it here, is a worship offering of each one's will. And he gives three qualifiers in verse 7 about what giving truly is. And the first qualifier is that this giving that results in the blessing of God is a purposeful giving, giving purposely. 
In each one's heart, Christian giving is to be a custom experience. I think this is pretty cool. In each one's heart, you are to decide as God leads how you are to give. It's a custom experience. It's not something that we all do in a uniform way. We do it as the Holy Spirit leads each one of us. Now, the first thing this might mean to you, depending on how you were raised or what you've learned, is that we're not all just giving 10%. God doesn't say, this is how you give. Take a tenth of all that you have and give it to the church. That's not it. It says that each one must do as he has purposed in his heart. Now, sometimes we will use the term tithe as shorthand, saying that that's what we're doing when we're giving, we're tithing. But I was corrected on that pretty early on in my time here at this church, where one Sunday I was out in the lobby, I still remember where we were, and I was talking to my friend Mr. Bowman here, and I said something of, about, I need to get my tithe in the box real quick. And he said, we don't tithe. Sorry for the impersonation. But I said, what do you mean? I got it right here. And he said, we don't even know what tithing is. And of course, not knowing Jerry at that point, I thought I was like getting a really harsh rebuke or something, not knowing that's just how he talks. I was getting a soft rebuke. <clears throat> and... What he was saying is true. If you study in the Old Testament what they were instructed to do for tithing, it was more than 10%. And it affected more than their biweekly paycheck or whatever they were getting. It affected so much more than that. And it really added up. And that was a law for them. That was a law for Israel. God doesn't carry that over and say for the church, you have to obey all of their tithing laws. Instead, what we have is this commission to give purposefully in each one's heart. It is no longer a law standard. Your giving to God is not a law standard. It's a custom leading by the Spirit of God. We must be led by the Spirit, and He will teach us how to give. Otherwise, we won't even know what to do. As Philip Hughes said in his commentary, the source of giving is not the purse, but the heart. God is working in each one's heart, helping us to purpose what we are to give. So that's the first qualifier for how we are to give. The second qualifier, besides purposely, is willingly. We are not to give grudgingly. We are not to give under compulsion because our arm has been twisted. We are to give willingly. Forced giving is robbery, don't you know? That's what that is. It's no longer worship. You know, many people out there give against their wills, depending on what type of religious group they're a part of. People giving against their wills. And they do so to appease their fellow man because it's what's expected of them. Because they're told this is what they are to do. Their will is not in it. They give grudgingly. And that's a fool's errand. Scripture says, we are to give willingly. Have you noticed through chapters 8 and 9, Paul has said multiple times that these things that people are giving, whether it's money or their time, that they are doing of their own accord. They're doing so willingly, not under compulsion. Paul isn't twisting their arms, but true giving is done willingly. And thirdly, true giving is to be joyful, purposeful, Willingly, 
and it's to be done joyfully. With cheer. The one who is truly happy to do it is truly giving. And I think this naturally follows the first two qualifiers. If, if you're giving purposefully, if you're giving willingly, it should naturally follow that you're giving joyfully. When one of God's children imitates Him in cheerful, joyful giving, it pleases Him. From MacArthur's commentary, I love this little line, he said, it is hard to imagine a more precious promise than to be the personal object of God's love. God loves a cheerful giver. What a promise. What a promise. And we do well to remember the overarching principle of all that Paul is saying in these chapters. In chapter 8, verse 9, look back with me, the chapter before, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. That's the big overarching idea that through the poverty of Christ, we might be rich. And as we continue to imitate Christ in this life by giving purposely, willingly, joyfully, we continue to get rich. Those who sow bountifully will reap bountifully by the blessing of God. And our giving should imitate Jesus, sacrificial and joyful. In Hebrews chapter 12, the first two verses of that chapter says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before Him. Of course, there is joy in that exaltation. Sitting down at the right hand of God. There is joy in that final aspect of the whole process. But I believe that Jesus also had joy all the way through His life. It says in Luke chapter 10 that when He saw that His disciples were believing and were able to do what He commissioned them to do, He greatly rejoiced in His heart and He prayed thanks to the Father. We are to give like Jesus, purposely, willingly, joyfully. Yes, Jesus was sent by the Father, but He came willingly. He gladly submitted to the Father's sending. And boy, did He come with a purpose. Jesus gave His life for a purpose, didn't He? To redeem for Himself a blood-bought people. To show that He is the man who is God to impart grace and mercy to all who believe. Well, I want to finish with this quick thought. What's the solution? If you do not have these aspects going on in your life when it comes to giving, giving purposely, willingly, and joyfully, what's the solution? Some might say the solution is to stop giving until you can work it out. I'd say the solution is to just adjust. Change your thinking about it. Because you've been called to give, haven't you? As a Christian, you claim the name of Christ. You're redeemed by God. The principle here is for all people to give. And if you're having a hard time 
submit to the Word of God on this and see the goodness of God in this. See the grace and the love of God in giving. And give purposely, willingly, joyfully. Repent. Repent if you need to repent. And ask God to help you in this. I'll finish with a quote from Homer Kent's commentary. I thought he said this really well. He said this statement, verse 7, was not meant to discourage giving, but to make the giver examine his motives. If one gives with wrong motives, he should change his motives, not stop giving. The point is that giving willingly from the heart pleases him, and this should encourage every Christian to give with cheerfulness, not with misgivings or second thoughts. Paul didn't want them to say, oh, well, we can't give cheerful anymore, so we're not going to help the saints in Jerusalem. That wasn't what he thought. He said, God loves a cheerful giver. Let's get back in the game and let's finish the task. And that applies to us, doesn't it, today? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the mission you've called us to, the great commission to reach the world, but also to love one another, to care for one another. Help us, Lord, to do this in any way that you've given us the means to do it, financially, sacrificially, of our time, whatever the case may be. God, have us to do so purposely, willingly, and joyfully. As each one of us struggles, as each one of us has to fight off covetousness and greed that's always at the door, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who gives us such a great example of giving that we would be sacrificially loving all those you've given us influence over. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the body. Help us to participate in the body well by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.